1: to send your direction today. Shall we just jump right in? Among the things we're going to be covering today, we're going to talk about your civic duty to fill out that customer satisfaction survey. I only am sharing this because my wife and I both kind of got caught up in surveys the last couple of days. 20 minutes on the phone, each of us. I mean, it didn't, maybe it was a waste of time, maybe not, but uh, we did it. We'll also talk a little bit about uh, the difference between the founders' education and what we call education today. Got a great article from Annie Holmquist about overcoming life's tragedies, the, the people who overcome life's tragedies, and go on to become good fathers. I love it because, well, I love any story that, uh, that shows redemption or the ability to overcome overwhelming odds. So that's one of the reasons I'll be sharing that. Also, a great article from Vincent McCaffrey. This one kind of hurt. It stung, but it rang very true. And that's how our obsession with current politics is also distracting us from knowing and applying the wisdom of the ages. But I'm going to start on a kind of out there note. This was so fascinating, and I really like Doug Casey's take on a lot of different things. So when I saw this article pop up on LewRockwell.com earlier today, I thought, yeah, I think this one's worth sharing. And, and, you know, look, we all love the option of a day off work. We all love an excuse to celebrate. But does it seem like there's a ton of fake holidays that are being pushed on us right now? And it's because of politics. Doug Casey actually talks about how holidays have become politicized and politicians are now actually creating fake ones for the sake of, you know, pandering to identity politics groups. So in this interview with International Man, they start with the basics. He's asked the question, what are holidays? Why are they important to a culture or country? Doug Casey's answer is, well, the word holiday actually comes from Holy Day. So it has religious derivation. Now he says, once upon a time, I'd say as recently as the 1950s, religion played a very important role in Western culture. It no longer does. Christianity is a dead duck in Europe, fading rapidly in North America. Much of it is being replaced... Uh, much of it, much as it replaced classical religions, starting in the late Roman Empire, Christianity is now being replaced by wokeism slash greenism. I love that he makes the distinction. That, that is a religion, even though it masquerades as no, no, no. This is neutral, neutral ground. It's not. But his point is, our holidays until recently were still about shared values or shared traditions. In other words, they were acknowledgment of common beliefs, a celebration of what was important among the people of a country or a culture. But that's no longer the case. The meaning of holidays, as with so many things, has been degraded. Now, International Man follows up by saying, well, marketing agencies are responsible for most consumer-based holidays, which aim to get people to buy stuff they don't need. It started with Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, but now there seems to be a holiday for everything. We've got National Tequila Day, National Donut Day, Amazon Prime Day, and countless others. And so, Doug is asked, what's your take on this? Doug Casey says, previously people limited work during holidays. They were celebrations. Sure, there were sales of food, drink, and things necessary for the celebration. But in the past, selling was just a consequence, a necessary adjunct of the holiday. Today, selling has become the essence of the holiday. Christmas used to have a real religious religious essence, but it's devolved into little more than a time for intensive marketing and competitive gift-giving. Now, one of the very few good things about the giant amount of debt in society and the unfolding Greater Depression is that the promiscuous consumption centering around holidays will drop. People are likely to reorient toward more basic values as times get tough. He says the fact that so many holidays have gotten a seal of approval and made official by the government and been made official by the government is another sign that fascist values have overcome the west. Fascism, you'll recall, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with violence and black uniforms. It's simply the melding of big business and government. They support each other and prosperous big business means more tax revenue for the state. That's exactly what Mussolini, who coined the word fascism, intended. So next, International Man asks Doug Casey to talk about identity politics, noting it's been a big factor in the surge of new holidays as politicians seek to cater to certain groups. My goodness, we're coming up on one right now. Juneteenth, a newly declared federal holiday. Columbus Day has been rebranded as Indigenous People's Day. President Clinton gave the first presidential declaration making Kwanzaa. And now we have Pride Month for those with sexual deviations. February is dedicated to black history, November to to Native Americans, and so forth. It seems like there's a day, a week, or a month for every group. And so International Man asks Doug Casey, what's going on here? Doug's answer is that holidays have become politicized. Many years ago, holidays were times when people would acknowledge common beliefs and traditions. In other words, they united people but the newly minted ones see individuals as parts of a group, in effect arraying them against other groups. Now, he says, of course, I question the value of artificially uniting people in the first place because it typically emphasizes the lowest common denominator, like race. The deletion of Columbus Day, he says, is shameful in itself. Columbus, for all his faults, was a heroic character who initiated a new era in world history. But replacing it with indigenous people's day... That's even more shameful, as is the use of the term Native Americans. It emphasizes the fact that they were here first, which implies and perhaps even emphasizes the fact that Europeans took over their property. But more advanced civilizations have been doing that to primitive ones since day one. It's purposely antagonistic to emphasize it. In fact, Russell Means, with whom he says I was friendly, if not an actual friend, preferred the term Indian for a number of reasons. Doug Casey says I agreed with him on that. Self-hating white workers, have a white wokesters rather, have a long history of subtly corrupting words. But that aside, he says today, holidays have become so politicized that they're no longer mellow and joyous, but have become a source of resentment for everyone. They don't create cheer and camaraderie, but antagonize groups that feel left out. This is a natural consequence of no longer being a country which shares traditions, beliefs, and attitudes the U.S. has become a multicultural domestic empire with numerous groups striving for power over each other. Holy cow, does that ring true? He says this is a natural consequence. And even the things which seem relatively benign, like Martin Luther King Day, and he seems like a basically thoughtful and decent human being, was only made a holiday as a sop to blacks who rioted after he was killed. The state was, in effect, just throwing a racial group a bone. Same is true of the totally phony holiday called Kwanzaa, fabricated and promoted by Ron Karenga, a rabid race baiter. It would have been equally legitimate, and he says, personally, I would have preferred a holiday for Malcolm X. Why? Well, because toward the end of his life, he was becoming a rather overt libertarian, something that most people are completely unaware of because of his black Muslim name. But it's a bad idea for the state to create holidays for anyone or anything out of thin air. If you want to promote something, do so but don't use public funds to impose it on everyone else. Now, he says the worst of these phony constructs may be Juneteenth, which is now a national holiday. Wikipedia says it was the day, June 19, 1865, two months after the end of the war, when federal troops marched into Galveston and informed blacks that they were no longer slaves. But perhaps even the 1619 Project will someday be turned into a holiday of some type. It's the year when the first black slaves were brought to Virginia. Its promoters say that was the country's real founding. The whole concept is based on a fraud, the overt lie that the U.S. was built on slavery. The 1619 Project is clearly intended to promote race hatred. Doug Casey says the widespread acceptance of these things is further proof that the government has been captured by actual Jacobins. The Democrats are a reincarnation of the group that tore France apart in the 18th century. They're the most important cadre leading the ongoing cultural revolution in the United States. So then comes the question, do all these newly created celebrations cheapen traditional holidays? And how does it factor into the bigger trend of the de- of the degradation of Western civilization? Well, Doug answers, I suspect the change started in earnest back in the 1950s when people started writing Xmas instead of Christmas. He says, I'm not a religious person, but I am a cultural traditionalist in many ways. Many of our hallowed traditions seem to have religious roots. They have nothing to do with religion, but they're quite benign. Lovable old Santa Claus has absolutely nothing to do with the original idea of Christmas. He was popularized by the famous cartoonist Thomas Nash in the mid-19th century, then adopted by Coca-Cola Company in the 1930s. He says this type of thing is true even to a greater extent with Easter, which, unbeknownst to most, is more important than Christmas, at least in the Christian liturgy. The original concept of Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus, has been replaced with things like the Easter bunny and chocolate eggs. So they're very nice traditions, but we have to recognize the original meaning of Easter has gone away. I'm going to come back to this article just because he touches on a few other holidays, too. I thought you might appreciate his take. Yes, there is a link that I'm providing in the show notes.
0: You can access it by going to thebryanhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Talking about holidays,
1: particularly the rising number of fake holidays. Oh, I know. You're just being contrarian, Brian, because you don't appreciate a good day off. No, I love a day off. I I love a bank holiday. I love, you know, knowing that the trash man isn't coming to get my trash today. Okay, I'm being a little sarcastic, but I I have to admit, I think there's, there's a lot of political pandering that's going into the most recent fake holidays that are coming up to the point where... Holidays really don't mean anything special. Doug Casey, in an interview with International Man, talks about how we've we've lost the original meaning of Christmas. We've lost the original meaning of Easter. He says Halloween's another example. It used to be All Saints and All Souls Day. Now it's all about spooks and goblins and costumes. So its religious significance has totally disappeared. Once again... Not being a religious person, he says, that doesn't really bother him. Santa and the Easter Bunny are benign. They take the hard edge off dogmatic religious holidays. But who wants black-clad Puritans dictating holidays or holy days? But they are indicative of certain trends. Take, for instance, Christmas itself. He says, you rarely wish people Merry Christmas anymore. In recent years, you wish them happy holidays, which means absolutely nothing. Nothing. Of course, if we go back earlier, the early church designated Christmas as a time to subvert and replace Saturnalia, a raucous Roman religious holiday that took place at the same time. Easter is a later appropriation of the ancient celebration of the spring equinox, a fertility festival. The Christians captured pagan holidays. Now neo-pagans are capturing Christian holidays. You can like it or not, but he says society evolves. In some ways, it's benign. In other ways, not so much. So finally, International Man asks, okay, most governments throughout history have invented new holidays to distract the plebs from bigger issues. Do you see this happening today? What does the rise of fake holidays say about the big picture? Doug Casey's answer is this uh, perhaps goes back to the French Revolution. The Jacobins totally renamed and reformed the calendar and all holidays. They attempted to overtly overturn society. Well, that does sound familiar, doesn't it? That's what's going on today, says Doug Casey. Holidays are no longer organic or traditional. They no longer rotate around nature and well-worn traditions. They're created by fiat out of Washington and marketers in New York and Hollywood. Ill-intentioned groups that masquerade as benevolent or righteous reformers. These people are identical in character and intention to the Jacobins in France, the Bolsheviks in Russia, or the Nazis in Germany. They try to capture the culture along with the politics and economics of society. Reinventing holidays is just one of the many fronts in the culture war. An overture to a real revolution is taking place. So he says, we'll see where it goes, but trends in motion tend to stay in motion. And he says, my guess is that before things get better, they're going to get pretty scary. Pretty interesting stuff. I was thinking about this as uh, I I saw an exchange on Twitter yesterday. and, And look... I, I'm not trying to pour more fuel on the fire, but I'm sure this is going to anger or upset somebody. But the the amount of flags that some municipalities are flying right now, and I mean rainbow flags, it's Pride Month, they're everywhere. And it just struck me that, uh, you know, this is kind of, for some reason this is reminiscent of, it, it makes me think of, uh, of the Sound of Music movie. And if you haven't seen it or it's been a while, do you remember where Captain Von Trapp, is kind of being chided because he isn't hanging the Nazi flag. Everybody else is hanging the flag. Come on, look at the beautiful Nazi flag. You know, it's hanging everywhere. He wouldn't do it. In fact, he tears it down when somebody has the temerity to go and hang it on his house. And so someone put a couple of side-by-side pictures, one of uh, a huge pride display, and I mean, it's just rainbow flags as far as the eye can see out there in the public square, and they, they juxtaposed it with a picture of, uh, I don't know what city, maybe it was Berlin, but uh, but a large city in Germany during the uh, the ascendancy of the Third Reich. And I got to tell you, the vibe, it's very, very similar. Now, of course, people flipped out. Oh, you can't say that. Why, the Nazis persecuted homosexuals. and, and Some did, yes. But there was also a very strong... Um, Detachment from morality that brought the Nazis to power in the first place, and if you want to if you want to study or at least look into the history of Weimar Germany, the Weimar Republic and its final days before the Nazis took over, you will find that they had a anything goes kind of attitude when it came to debauchery and and uh, you know following whatever scratching whatever sexual itch you may have had. To the point that they were turning churches into brothels and things like this, you know, to show how advanced they were as a first world country. We don't need morality. We don't need religion. And then one day, for no reason at all, they elected Hitler. I mean, go figure. Now, does that mean that we're on our way to becoming, you know, a nation of goose-stepping people, throwing that Roman salute? Probably not. But the path to totalitarianism is pretty predictable. Whatever form it takes. And we are definitely marching, if, if you'll forgive the allusion uh, here, uh, we're marching toward a greater degree of totalitarianism. And the flags represent that totalitarian spirit of, look, we have conquered. We have taken over. Why, your American flag? <laughs> it's uh, it's an, uh, an afterthought compared to, you know, the, the true power, which is, you know, of course, the rainbow flag. I just thought it was really interesting, though, how people freaked out. How dare you compare this with, how dare you say that this is, you know, what, what, uh, you know, this compares to what the Nazis were doing. But here's the kicker. And it's not that I'm trying to, you know, equate, you know, gay equals Nazi. Totalitarianism, though, whatever form it takes, has some pretty consistent attributes. One of them is absolute, ruthless intolerance of any dissent. So just, you know, for the sake of, you know, hear me out on this, if a person says, yeah, I really don't like these flags or I, I'm not going to fly one or I don't support this holiday or this month of celebration, it's not for me. Are people likely to say, oh, well, hey, to each his own, you know, if it's not your thing, that's fine. We're going to go on celebrating. More power to you. You know as well as I do that uh, any really dedicated believer in that uh, new religion of wokeism is not going to respond that way. They are going to be hurling accusations of bigotry and you know, and, and, and the, the need to punish somebody for holding such an incorrect point of view, exactly like their totalitarian counterparts in Mao's China, in his uh, cultural revolution, in the Bolshevik revolution in, the, in Russia and in the Soviet Union, in the way the Nazis treated anybody who descended from their point of view the Jacobins in France. I think Doug Casey does a very good job of, of tying all of that together. And I don't think it's bad to point out, hey, you guys are marching to a similar tune, or at least I can see you taking a similar trajectory. When no dissent is allowed, when people don't have the option of just saying, eh, not for me, you are marching toward totalitarianism and you know people who've been paying attention to this i like to think that i've been paying attention for at least you know i don't know the last 30 years or so we've seen this coming and warned about this is this is not a benign hey let's all just get along and let's let's treat each other with love and respect and i just want to be free to live my life you know most people would be okay with that this is about imposing the correct attitudes the correct beliefs upon people who otherwise would not be embracing those things and since they won't embrace them w- willingly well it's got to be imposed on them and now because it's not happening quick enough people still aren't uh, embracing it quickly enough well we've got to take it to the kids and well, we're going to impose it on your children and if the children push back as they did in burlington vermont well that's intolerance that they're learning at home that's interesting my my parents it turns out to uh, taught me an awful lot of intolerance. Of course, it was under the guise of, you know, some things will always be right, some things will always be wrong. And it came with the warning of, you need to be able to distinguish between what's right and what's wrong, and and not embrace things that are wrong or things that are unsound. Now, that's not out of a sense of, therefore, you can walk around morally superior to everybody around you. It was more out of a sense of, this will help you find happiness in the here and now and and presumably in the eternities as well. Hey, as I've applied their advice through my life, I've found this to be true. But we each get to make that choice for ourselves.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back.
1: I do want to give a quick uh, shout-out to my sponsors. Thank you so much for helping to support the show. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com. MCP nation that's the uh, modern conservative podcast by the way john harvey is back in production and uh, he's got some great stuff to say click on the link go check out some of his merchandise and use the code hide h-y-d-e to score yourself some savings also ClimbingUpward.com. That reminds me gotta make a note to myself call john pulver today let's get him booked on this program love his book His book is, of course, uh, growing beyond your family of origin experience, but he also is uh, quite a talented musician. You can check it out by clicking on the link I provide in today's show notes. All right, Kyle, where to begin? So much to cover here. Actually, I want to take a moment here and just talk about filling out customer service or customer satisfaction surveys. Um, Art Carden, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, says it's officially vacation season, and that means big bucks for coastal communities and theme parks. So how do they make sure things go right? And how do they learn when things have gone wrong? Profits and losses are reliable guides. Markets act swiftly and surely to reward people who satisfy consumers and punish people who don't. He says the process suggests that you might actually affect more meaningful change responding to customer satisfaction emails than you might by following politics and voting. In fact, there's a meme going around saying the mayor in Jaws is still the mayor in Jaws 2, which shows why it's important to vote in local elections. Now, he says it's cute, but you'll notice something even more important. The entrepreneur who unwittingly allows bloody mayhem in his theme park in Jaws 3D is nowhere to be found in Jaws, the revenge, which shows that it's even more important to make sure people who don't give their customers what they want lose money. He says, I can imagine what the follow-up customer satisfaction survey email exchange might have looked like in our world of rapid communication feedback. How likely are you to recommend this park to a friend? Not at all likely. Why or why not? Arm bitten off by giant shark. The hard truth is that filling out a customer survey probably makes a bigger difference than following politics and voting. Ask virtually anyone if they think you have a moral obligation to vote, and they will say, yes, You'll likely hear from pulpits and read on op-ed pages, the right to vote is sacred and the solemn duty of a good citizen. You might hear that if you don't vote, you have no right to complain about what the government does, how high your taxes are, how low the taxes on the rich are, and so forth. But he says that economists sometimes gleefully remind you that your vote will not matter. By this, we mean that your vote is exceedingly unlikely to be decisive in a large election. By unlikely to be decisive, we mean your vote will not change the outcome. The Electoral College amplifies this somewhat. Consider, for example, the 2024 presidential election. He says, I'm pretty sure Donald Trump or whoever takes the Republican nomination will win Alabama, where he lives, and Joe Biden or whoever takes the Democratic nomination will win Massachusetts, where AIER is located. So he says, if I vote Democratic or if I vote Democrat, the Republicans will win Alabama. If I vote Republican, the Republicans will win Alabama. If I vote Libertarian, the Republicans will win Alabama. If I vote Green, Alabama will still go Red. If I don't vote at all, the Republicans will still win Alabama. Art Cardin says, schools have, or scholars rather have spent a lot of time and spilled a lot of ink discussing the obligation to vote, the mechanics of voting, the incentives people face when they vote, and the implications of those incentives for the outcomes we observe, and so on. Maybe voting is important as a civic ritual, even if it doesn't actually change the outcome. Given the time and energy people spent denying the franchise to marginalized groups and the long struggle to obtain and protect voting rights, the argument makes a lot of sense. There's a sense in which voting, while it isn't likely to change the outcome of an election, is like taking communion in church, which isn't particularly nutritious. Maybe you should do it because of its ritual value. It's a form of communion with the polis with those who have come before and who sacrificed in order to secure the right to vote and those who will come after. Maybe. But he says, let's think about organizations' responsiveness to your wants and needs in different institutional contexts. Do people listen to voters? Well, they say they do, but the political process is painfully slow. Borrowing from Steve Horowitz, compare the Flint water crisis to what happens when McDonald's messes up your order. McDonald's takes care of it swiftly. The Flint government, not so much. I'm sure we've all heard about times things have gone wrong at a fast food restaurant, but with billions and billions served, McDonald's could perform plot flawlessly 99.9999% of the time and still have hundreds and hundreds of vivid horror stories. They do a remarkable job remarkably responsibly. Political change is possible, of course, and people devote their lives to it, but... Art Carden says if you really want to see which organizations are nimble and responsive to their constituents' needs, look at customer business service or business customer service rather and compare it to the DMV or the local planning board or the health department. To their credit, representatives of the Transportation Security Administration contacted me after I wrote the article titled Dear TSA, I am not your customer. And yet, in spite of some minor changes, the TSA still exists and still subjects people to routine and wasteful humiliations before allowing them, allowing them to board a plane. By the way, just as a side note, why are they taking everyone's pictures now? I've had two people in the last week tell me about this. Maybe this is a topic we can bring up for another show. Anyway, back to Art Cardin's article. He says, hence, I wonder how to most meaningfully affect change for the person who wants to better the world. Should you spend your time voting, preparing to vote, or researching the candidates and so on? Or should you take five or ten minutes to fill out the customer satisfaction survey you were emailed after your last flight or hotel stay? He says to have an actual, tangible effect on the world, I would suggest the survey. It's kind of hard to argue with his logic, though. He says here's an example of a business being responsible to a customer's wants and needs. Not long ago, I opened a drawer in a hotel room at a conference and found a pack of condoms. Now, he says they were unopened, thank God, but suffice it to say, this wasn't the welcome I was expecting or hoping for. I took them downstairs and discussed it with the manager on duty. They instantly credited my loyalty account with some points, which were unnecessary, and likely took a look at how well they inspect rooms in the cleaning process. Now, he says after our home was broken into in 2008... I don't recall getting a customer satisfaction survey or an apology from local police or any bonus points in my Memphis PD loyalty program. So if you're suggesting to become a better voter in the run up to the 2024 election, he says, here are some reading suggestions. He actually has a link. And then he says, civic responsibility is hard, but it doesn't have to be. Do some extra reading, work to understand political economy and fill out that next customer service survey you get. It might even be your civic duty. I know Art Cardens is doing doing this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I see his point. I don't disagree with him. The business has incentive to keep you happy. So the time you take to fill out that survey, that's probably a good thing. Politicians, on the other hand, well, what can I say? I know I'm lumping everybody in there. There are some good people who hold political office. And we should be grateful for them, and we should strive to elect honest, good, and wise individuals. That's the standard. I mean, those three things, they're not unobtainium, but uh, really, for the most part, people just, oh, you know, I'm just going to go for whichever politician gives me the warmest fuzzies. Without ever stopping to think, most politicians will say whatever they need to say in order to get elected and do whatever they, they need to do to stay in power through procuring, you know, the funds necessary to you know, maintain their their political livelihood. All right, moving on. I don't know about you, but trying to keep sanity right now feels a lot like swimming upstream and getting tired. There's a great article from uh, Vincent McCaffrey. This is on uh, amgreatness.com. And the point he makes here is that our current obsession with the politics of the moment, rather than the wisdom of the ages threatens our ability to govern ourselves and to cause forever to be ruled by ideology. This is a fantastic article. He says, you are not as stupid as they say you are. Now, how smart you are is another matter. After 75 years of nonstop miseducation, mass media indoctrination, and periodic orgies of fear in this country, you're still pretty smart. And he says, this general intelligence is called common sense. And it was likely inherited at the dinner table from ancestors who were sharp enough to to get out of the dodgy old world, coupled with the residual of cultural smarts that lingers even yet. Whether it comes from the general environment of our small towns, from our Cape Cod houses to the Pueblo revivals of the Southwest, or if it lies in our appreciation of a good hamburger, mom's apple pie, Mark Twain, even Dr. Seuss, there are just wholesome things that are part of being an American. He says, this is where we live. I'm going to come back to this in just a few moments, but man, I do spend more time than I want following what's happening politically. not saying that's a good thing, but it's it's definitely something that I I spend a fair amount of time doing. But I think the idea of uh, if we're overlooking the wisdom of the ages, if we're not familiar with what informed the thinking of the people who came before us, we really are missing out on a great opportunity. You know, it's not about being the smartest person in the room, and it's not being about the, per- the person who can just most quickly identify the problems and stand there loudly pointing fingers and, you know, telling people what they are. It's about being the kind of person who can zero in on what is the principle at stake and what are the solutions.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's touch again
1: briefly on Vincent McCaffrey's article about swimming upstream and getting tired. He says, you know, uh, whether it comes from the general environment of our small towns, our Cape Cod houses to the Pueblo revivals of the Southwest, or even just the appreciation of a good hamburger, mom's apple pie, Mark Twain, or even Dr. Seuss, he says there are just wholesome things that are part of being an American. This is where we live with our heritage and deal with our mistakes, even after a 75-year harangue by the pseudo-intellectuals who think they're smarter but have been, un- been unable to shake us down to their level of self-loathing and bigotry. Now, you might ask, why? Why would so many people want to give up something as generally pleasing and comparatively comfortable as traditional American values and all of the advantages they've obtained, a- attained rather, for human freedom? Why against a historical background so well described by Thomas Hobbes in the Leviathan as a condition with no arts, no letters, no society, which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, just in order to take on the harsh and destructive rhetoric of modern ideology? Well, he says the answer, as is often the case with the most difficult questions, is a very simple one, stupidity. And he goes into how we have become stupid through the poison of ideology. It's really quite a remarkable article, and I hope it's something that you'll take the time to read. I want to just share one quick insight that he shows. He says, uh, the presentation of politics itself has become more sophisticated. Anti-slavery storylines were common in the 1850s, as were the depictions of the beloved family member who just happens to be a piece of property. The rapacious factory owner exploiting his workers was as common in literature as the generous benefactor of hard-working and honest youth. But he says his factory managers have become subordinate to the arcane wishes of multinational corporate boards obscuring national interests. The employment of foreign workers who have no cultural ties has become more than an economic issue. To those few who bother to look for context our present sargasso sea of conflicting values often places the best interests of the public up for interpretation. Is pollution the same as climate change? Are equal rights the same as equity? And even yet, we're not smart enough to stop voting for the professional liars who run our government. His point being, we still have some learning to do. Andrew Breitbart was famously glib, but one quip will likely survive anything else he said. Politics is downstream from culture. He says, our current obsession with the politics of the moment, rather than the wisdom of the ages, must be seen in this light in order not to be forever ruled by ideology. Powerful, powerful observation there. I definitely think he's on to something. All right, we're going to end on a little bit higher note today. I want to share with you an essay from Annie Holmquist. This is from her Substack, stack uh, annieholmquist.substack.com. Annie's Attic. Gaining victory over life's tragedies to be a good father subtitle here is just because a man had terrible role models or a traumatic childhood doesn't mean he can't be a good husband and father. She says last fall, the New York Post reported on the declining numbers of men wanting children. Between 2012 and 2018, the percentage of childless men ages 15 to 49 responding that they did not want children doubled from 9.9% to 20.2%. Now, the reason for this decline likely cannot be laid solely at the feet of today's males. Women and the demands of the feminist movement likely contribute to this, disinter- in this disinterest in children, as well as the broken families and lack of male role models that today's child age or child-bearing age men experienced growing up. And then there's just the general chaotic state of the world, which plants doubt into almost every mind about the wisdom of bringing a child into such a mess. She says, for any male thinking these thoughts, I would encourage him to reconsider, pointing to author and ex-communist Whitaker Chambers as an example. Like many, Chambers had a miserable childhood. His father was fairly non-communicative and struggled in his marriage to Chambers' mother, eventually deserting the family for some years, causing his wife and children to scrape together a hand-to-mouth existence. The hard life likely wore on Chambers' brother who committed suicide as a young adult. Chambers' life path first led toward the Communist Party, where he served as a spy and then away from it, serving as a journalist while maintaining a small farm in the country with his own wife and children. Chambers' way out of the Communist Party is recorded in Witness, a book which also offers some profound perspectives on the ups and downs of culture and life in general. He prefaced this book with a letter to his children in which he gives some hints at how he overcame a difficult childhood to become a good man, loving husband, and kind father. The first thing Chambers did in this pursuit was tell his children about both the low and high points of his life. And he did this not to show that he was a victim of difficult circumstances, but so that his children could learn from his own mistakes. The second thing Chambers did was to model the right way of living. He took his children to church and sat with them during the service. He didn't simply send them out to do chores on the farm. He worked alongside his children. He taught his children to have fun, laughing together as family and watching the wonders of nature firsthand, building reverence and awe for life and the world in their little lives. The third thing Chambers did was shelter his children from the world. He and his wife purposely limited their children's media exposure, nurturing them with classic literature and other wholesome activities instead. Such sheltering, however, didn't mean his children were shielded from sorrow and the difficulties of life. Instead, they learned about the realities of life and death through the natural realm of their farm, enabling them to effectively deal with tragedy when they would inevitably encounter it. Crime, violence, infamy are not tragedy, Chambers wrote. Tragedy occurs when a human soul awakes and seeks in suffering and pain to free itself from crime, violence, and infamy, even at the cost of life. The struggle is the tragedy, not defeat or death. That is why the spectacle of tragedy has always filled men not with despair, but a sense of hope and exaltation. In essence, Annie writes, Chambers was able to overcome the difficulties of his childhood and the mistakes of his early adulthood because he chose to right the ship, avoiding playing the victim, and choosing hope by following God and his ways instead. And in doing so, he was able to set a different course for his children. And so she asks, As we come to Father's Day, why can't we do the same? Today's men don't have to reject children and family just because they had a bad experience growing up. Instead, they have a beautiful opportunity to right the ship, to seek the Lord, the perfect Father in heaven for his wisdom and example, to be a kind, loving Father, open to children and ready to raise them to be mighty warriors that thrive in spite of the sick culture that surrounds them. I like that, and I and I've I've, I've I look at the the sentiment here too from uh, the the aspect of you know I look at my own life and, and I think okay there were things that uh, that came to me through uh, my parents who raised me and there were there were certain there were certain traditions or or habits or mindsets that were handed down to them that uh, probably weren't the healthiest. I'll just give you the example. You know, the my, my parents were definitely raised in an era of you do not spare the rod. If a kid misbehaves, corporal punishment is, you know, the way that you get that kid back in line. Now, that doesn't mean that my parents beat me and, you know, I was abused my whole life. I wasn't, but I did catch a couple of beatings. I caught regular spankings and, you know, it... it Corporal punishment was definitely on the table when I messed up. And yet, comparatively, especially, you know, for my dad, um, his, his parents were much, much harsher with him. And I suspect it goes back to, it, it wasn't that they were cruel, evil people. They weren't. But they were definitely raised in, a, in an era where if kids were acting out, you know, you put them in line, you know, quickly. I mean, we're talking about this is the kind of era where if your kid got in trouble and the cops brought him home, the cops would stand there and watch and probably chuckle as dad beat the crap out of, you know, the wayward teenage boy out there in the front yard. That was just, you know, poop rolls downhill. And, you know, if you're going to correct a kid, that's how it's done. Now, today, that seems unthinkable. Well, he wouldn't do this. And I guess what I'm getting at is my parents were in many ways more lenient than their parents. Likewise, I find myself being more lenient with my kids, and i you know it's not to say that my kids didn't get spankings sometimes they did, but they got far fewer spankings than I did as a kid, and I'm hoping that uh, that my kids will be even better parents and have better parenting skills than I did. By the way, it is painful to have to admit and and now that my most of my kids are grown ups, you know I think it's it's pretty safe for them to understand. Yeah, you know, that time when I was the superhero, I was the dad, I knew all the answers, I could do anything that, you know, they they could always trust me to get the right answer. No, like, like my parents and their parents before them, I had to make it up as I went along. I had to learn as I went along, and I didn't get a lot of stuff right. So I appreciate any slack that they cut me, and I'm hoping that whatever mistakes I made, they learned from and don't duplicate with their own kids. I just really like the idea that uh, you can overcome those circumstances. And I think Annie Holmquist's essay is a really great place to start. You can find it in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Think about subscribing
0: if you're so inclined. This is The Brian Hyde Show.